You're listening to the weekly podcast by Forest Hill Church. Here you'll find a place to grow in your faith, get to know what the Bible is all about, and hear what it looks like to follow Christ. To watch our services live or find a campus nearest you, visit foresthill.org. Good morning. Welcome to Forest Hill Church. It's great to have all of you here. Um, our creative visual arts department with a new idea, but trying to get the point across our purpose in this series for the next several months is to study the book of John, to know Jesus personally through an eyewitness account of the disciple who loved Jesus so deeply called John, and to hear his voice. And we know we hear God's voice through God's word, so we wanted to go through what's called often the most intimate gospel in helping you understand who Jesus is and what he might have to say to all of us. Um, If I'm a bit discombobulated uh, this morning, it's because Marilyn and I and the team that went to Cairo, Egypt, New Cairo this past week, uh, arrived at 3.30 uh, on Saturday morning. Uh, so we got back through the ice storms on the East Coast, and uh, I'm a bit fatigued, but I've got the Word of God to preach to you this morning, and I'm excited about doing so. Uh, just real quickly, last week was the prologue of John as we began this study of trying to hear the voice of God. Uh, the prologue is John 1, 1 through 5, and it answers the question, who is Jesus? It says basically he is eternally with God. Uh, he is eternally God. He is the one who created all of the universe. He brought life to our deadness, and he brought light to our darkness. That, that was last week's message. Who's Jesus? He is God in human flesh, the second person of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son. Then there's also God the Holy Spirit. And he came to redeem the world and make it his own because of our sin. So that, that's what last week's message was. This week is answering the question, not who is Jesus, but really more how do we live for those of us who have Jesus living inside of us because what the Christian faith is all about is the belief that God lives inside of those of us who believe in Jesus and have received him as our Lord and Savior. So today the message is that God wants to live through us in Jesus in perfect balance between grace and truth. That's today's message, John, the first chapter, verses 9 through 14, with a special emphasis on verse 14. If you're able, out of reverence for the reading of the Scripture, would you now stand? This is the word of the Lord. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. That's Jesus. The world was made through Jesus. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, that's the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And the word, Jesus, became flesh, And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of, what folks? Grace Grace and truth, full of grace and truth. That will be our emphasis today, full of grace and truth. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So the word became flesh in Jesus. God communicated to us in a way we could understand. If we saw a bird in trouble and we wanted to communicate with that bird how to live and we had all power, the best way to communicate to that bird would be to what? To become a bird and to speak bird language to that bird. 
Well, God became a human being. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God put on a human fleshly tent and moved into the neighborhood. He came to live among us. That's the uniqueness of Jesus. It's the incarnation, as it's called in fancy theological terms. God became a human being. And then it says Jesus, God in human flesh, is full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. So people who believe in Jesus, who've received him as their Lord and Savior, should live their lives out full of grace and truth. Not 50% grace and 50% truth. But 100% all the time with grace, 100% all of the time with truth. And folks, it is a delicate act to walk. Marilyn and I saw a movie some time ago called The Walk. It's the story of a Frenchman who had a desire to do a high-wire walk between the, ten tw- the Twin Towers when they were still in existence. Some of you may know the story. He recruited a team, came over to New York from France, and in a stealth way hid in the building, went up in the middle of the night and pulled a wire across the two buildings. And then the next morning, as people were walking to work, they looked up and saw this man on the high wire with a balancing beam walking step by step precipitously across the high wire. It was a dangerous deed. And the key to his success was what word? Balance. Balance. I had some years ago someone give me a placard that I still have in my office today. It's a wooden block that basically says on it, balance. Because I'm convinced that the key to the Christian life is walking in the delicate balance between grace and truth between grace and truth. And if Jesus lives in us and through us, we should be walking daily in 100% the delicate balancing act between grace and truth. That's what John's trying to teach us here. Remember, he's an eyewitness to the teachings of Jesus, and he knew that Jesus was filled with grace and truth. So so let's look at each one of these words more closely. First of all, let's look at the word grace. Grace. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who was a Christian author and uh, an expert in Semitic languages, who's gone on to be with the Lord, has written many books that has influenced many of us today, myself included. And, And he wrote one book called Mere Christianity, and chapter eight basically is responsible for my wife coming to faith in Jesus. She was an agnostic and atheist in college. And when she read that book and that chapter, it profoundly touched her heart, and she gave her life to Jesus. Well, Lewis, so well known as an Oxford professor, was in a meeting one day with a lot of his other Oxford dons who were not believers, and they were having a discussion on comparative world religions. Lewis walked by them, and one of them said, hey, Lewis, come over here. You know, you're, you're a Christian, What's the uniqueness of the Christian faith? And Lewis, with a bit of a chuckle in his heart, said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Grace is the unique word of the Christian faith. What does it mean? God's total unconditional acceptance of us, though far from him as rebels and sinners, he still pursues us in love, in grace. 
If you look at all of the world's religions, dear friends, they are really divided into two camps. There's one camp that's all of the world's religions except one that believe we've got to earn and work our way to God. That we walk in obedience to all of his rules and regulations. And if we do so, hopefully, though not assured, we will have his approval, his love, his acceptance. You never know for sure, you just hope so. That's, that's all the other world's religions. Do the comparative world's religion study yourself. Juxtaposed against all of those is one religion. It's called the Christian faith, which teaches that we are birthed with a disease called sin. We are in rebellion against God from day one. And those of us who love little babies, and I've got four little grandchildren. I love them like the Dickens, but you know they're born with this disease called sin. And if you don't believe that, For those of you who are parents, let me ask you a question. Do you have to teach your children to obey or disobey? Come on, now be honest. You have to teach them to obey. Why? Because they're birthed with a disease to disobey. They're bent with a nature to rebel. And one of the jobs of parents is to teach them that they're loved, but there needs to be obedience. We as parents have to walk in that grace and truth paradigm, don't we? I mean, my kids ask all the time two questions, basically. Do you love me, and can I have my own way? And I had to consistently answer as a good dad, what? Yes and no. Yes, I love you passionately, grace. No, you can't have your own way. So so this grace idea is that we can't earn God's favor. And the Bible teaches, and I know this isn't popular, but the teaching came from the lips of Jesus himself. That in our rebellion against God, born with that disease called sin, we're headed to a destination called hell. And hell is just a place where God doesn't exist. And in our rebellion, we want our way and we want to be separated from God. It's our choice. God doesn't send anybody to hell. Hell is a monument to human free will. So God knew that condition, and because he loves us so much, he put on human flesh. The word became flesh. And he pursued us to the point of dying on a cross, taking the sins of the world upon himself rather than you and me taking our sins to hell. And what motivated God to do that, folks? What motivated him to do His his love, his grace, his kindness, his mercy. God pursuing us instead of us pursuing God is the difference and uniqueness of the Christian faith. So Jesus was full of grace, full of God's unconditional, powerful love, pursuing us to have a relationship with the eternal God of the universe forever and ever. That, that's why Jesus came. That's the meaning of grace. It's God in us, working out his perfect love. And in the baby Jesus, we see that grace moving into the neighborhood, becoming one of us. So, so what's the second word? I mean, we all love the love idea of the Christian faith, but the next word isn't as popular. But it's nevertheless a part of the life of Jesus. He came filled with grace and what? And truth. And truth. What truth means is there is a right and there is a wrong. It is revealed in several places in our midst. It's first of all revealed in nature. There is natural law that exists the way the universe works. There's moral law. There's a conscious behavior 
that exists in most all of the world's nations. There is thirdly, the word of God, which for those of us who are Christians believe God has spoken in his word. And there's truth in his word. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. He said that. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not a way, not a truth, nor a life. He said, I am the way to the Father. I'm the exclusive, unique Son of God, the only way to God. In, in this worldview, this biblical perspective against all the other world's religions. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In, in fact, in John 17, 17, Jesus said this to all of us today, praying for us way back when he said, Father, sanctify them with your word. So the word sanctify means how to be like Jesus. Father, make them like me. Jesus is the personification of what God intended all human beings to be. So, Father, make them like me. Put your life in them and they become like me. Sanctify them with your word. Your word is truth. Your word's truth. So in Jesus and the word of God, we, we, we see truth along again with God's moral law and natural law. Now, let me talk a second about the natural law phenomenon. It's been slowly but surely dismissed from America's legal system. We look at science rather than natural law to inform us about truth, but God's truth never changes. And if you look at natural law, you see the way God intended his world to operate. And, and for example, in the book of Leviticus, don't you miss Leviticus? We, we studied Leviticus for seven months, a, a year plus ago. And Leviticus gives instructions to the Israelite people, God's chosen a special relationship with them to live as a wholly different people in the Canaanite culture, which was a godless, non-truth culture. And, and the Israelites were given commands like, and here's a, da, a, a dazzling uh, command from God. He said, do not boil young lambs in their mother's milk. And many of you read that as I did when I first read it. Went, What's that all about? Now, that's crazy. But when you really study it, you realize what God's trying to do. He's trying to say in the Canaanite culture, they boil young lambs in their mother's milk to cook them, to eat them. And God's saying to the Israelites, that's not natural. That, that's not natural. Don't do that because I want you to have an appreciation for natural law, how my universe operates. A more contemporary example, not to offend anyone, but I know that the purpose of preaching is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Think about this one. In 1973, America passed a law, Roe versus Wade. And it was the law of the land then with an overwhelming majority supporting them. Are you aware within the last several years, for the first time in American history since 1973, there are more Americans who are pro-life than pro-choice? First time. You, you, you want to know why? Let, let me tell you why. Sonograms. Sonograms for the first time over the last years, we've been able to look inside the womb and see the formation of human life. And, and we've seen how fingerprints and heartbeats are formed in the earliest weeks of conception. And so what's happened in America is a lot of people have gone to invade what should be the safest place for a child to live and grow is not natural. It, it, it's not natural. 
there's an offense within the heart toward natural law, toward truth. Interestingly, Merriam-Webster's dictionary last year, 2016, said the most often used new word in the English vocabulary is this. Are you ready for this? It's fascinating. The newest word in the American vocabulary is post-truth. Post-truth. Well, what that's basically saying is that truth no longer exists. That truth is whatever you want to believe it to be. And if what you believe is different than what I believe, we just need to learn how to get along with one another. Although that's never the way it's worked out in our culture, is it? Because the high priests of post-truth in America says that tolerance must be our greatest virtue. But that's a lie within itself. Because those who claim that tolerance is their highest virtue would never welcome somebody like me to the table to express my views. So therefore, the supposed most tolerant people become what? Intolerant. Because they're not really open to everybody's views, especially those who hold not the postmodern, post-truth worldview, but hold a biblical worldview that believes in such things as natural law, moral law, what Jesus taught in God's word. So truth is important as a part of God's way of living as well. And and the whole idea of post-truth is contrary to a biblical reality. So Jesus walked in the fullness of grace and truth, didn't he? And 100% both were a part of his life. You know, in marriage sometimes we say, you know, I live um, 50% of the husband giving and 50% of the wife giving. And those of us with successful marriages know that's an absolute lie, don't we? You live 100% in the marriage as a man and a woman committed to one another. That's the only way it works. Well, it's 100% with grace and truth being in our lives. Now, now what happens when you don't have one or the other? Well, let's first of all look at the whole idea of grace without truth. Grace without truth. Well, let me tell you where that leads eventually. The Greek word for grace in the Bible is agape. Many of you know that, agape. Well, when you have grace without truth, and truth is basically just the moral boundaries that God gives to life. It's the guardrails as you walk down life's road. It's to try to keep you from going off the edge. The purpose of God's laws and God's truth is not to be a celestial killjoy. The purpose of truth is to keep us on the road of life. And oftentimes it will keep us from hurting if we'll just do the rules God intended us to obey because he knows it's the right way to live. Let me me give you an example of that. The biblical perspective on human sexuality is one man, one woman in a committed heterosexual monogamous relationship. That was outlined in Genesis 2 before the fall. It's consistently taught throughout the scripture. It is what God's will is for human sexuality. Let me just ask you a question. And I know not many people practice it today, but it's God's will. If everybody on the face of the earth practiced human sexuality as God intended, how many social issues would go away within one generation. Think about that. So so God's laws aren't to keep us from enjoying his gifts to us. They are to put them within margins that help us enjoy them to the full. 
But if you eliminate truth and just have grace, you have what's called sloppy agape. Greasy grace. And it leads to all kinds of difficulties in society. If you have grace without truth, you basically have Judges 21-25, which were the darkest days in Israel's history. And here's the verse. It says, there was no God, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Folks, that's where we're headed. As a nation, as a culture, with post-truth being the newest word, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes, no moral boundaries. That's grace without truth. And in my humble opinion, that's where the basic mainline liberal denominational church is today. Go look at what they believe. It's a lot of love, especially in the area of personal morality, not much truth. And again, the only place where that can lead to is everybody doing what's right in their own eyes, and that will be the destruction of our nation, save a revival from a holy God. Secondly, there's though truth without grace. It's people who just believe this is God's word, and they preach it harshly, And with great conviction, and what does it lead to? A critical spirit. It leads to people who come across as legalistic and self-righteous. They have long faces and certainly don't exhibit the joy of the Lord. They live by man-made rules and regulations and say, if you don't do what this church says you should do, you're going to hell. And the man-made rules and regulations are things like don't dance and don't chew and don't go with girls that do. I mean, all that kind of. It's just some of you come out of that legalistic, painful church experience. And you've been told that you're not good enough, you'll never perform well enough, and God doesn't love you, and you're shattered in your soul and looking for grace. But truth without grace, in my opinion, are the Westboro Baptist types in our culture where they go to a church and a a gay person has died from HIV AIDS and they're out front celebrating it and saying fags go to hell with their signs. And it has nothing to do with grace. It's just truth without grace and it's judgmental and self-righteous. Jesus wants his people to walk in both. That that, that balance, that, that difficult high wire walk where grace and truth are both a part of our lives. So so how do we do it? Let me give you two ideas. First of all, live grace and truth out in that delicate high-wire act with your words. With your words. Paul said in Ephesians 4, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in what? In love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So so we speak the truth with love. My my mama used to say to me all the time, son, it's not just what you say, it's what? It's how you say it that's important. And that's what Paul's trying to get at. If you have convictions about truth, how you say it is maybe even more important than what you say. Again, Paul's trying to say, speak the truth in love. So make sure your words are seasoned with grace. That's another phrase Paul's used in Colossians 4. Make sure your words are seasoned with grace. 
But not only do you speak words of grace and truth, you also live the life of grace and truth. Both are so important in the life of the follower of Jesus. So let me give you a couple of personal examples. Um, Some of you know me well. Some of you don't know me at all. (laughs) I've been here at Forest Hill over three decades. We started out with a little church of about 150. And there was one baby in the nursery on a good Sunday. (laughs) It just was a very small... I was told not to come here. Uh, Mary and I were told the church was going to die. And, and we just said, well, any church where the gospel's preached, we believe could grow. So we came here and just started loving people and preaching the gospel. And we've seen what, what's happened over the 30-plus years. I've made a commitment to love this city. I, I love the city of Charlotte. I was raised here as a child, moved away, then came back, and been here now 30-plus years. And I want to make a difference in the city of Charlotte. So what I've done over the years is I've just tried to love the city of Charlotte in every way I can. The poor, the needy, the oppressed, the downcast, the disenfranchised, those with sexual conflictions in their heart. I've tried to love this city. But I've also tried to speak the truth. Those of you who know me know I've never faltered the word of God's message. I've never done it. And and I can share with you a couple of illustrations where I've lived this out and have felt like I've made a difference. One is with the Jewish community. Judy Schindler, who is the former rabbi at Temple Bethel, and I became friends some years ago. And we went out to lunch together, and I looked her in the eye in the middle of the lunch, and I said, Judy, you need to know this. I want you to know this. If Marilyn and I lived in Nazi Germany during the time of the extermination of the Jews, we would have hid your people faithfully. And should it have cost us our lives like it did Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German theologian who was hung because of his deep following of Jesus and love for the Jews? So be it. She put down her fork and she started crying. She started crying. And she said, I've not had many Christians say that to me. Well, I said, you need to know it's true. And if Marilyn was here, she'd say the same thing. We love your people. We love you. You know what's interesting? On several different occasions after that, Judy invited me to come speak at Temple Bethel. And one time in front of 1,000 Jews, she asked me to share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they would know what I believed. And I did so. I did so respectfully with my arm around Judy. She's about five feet tall. I'm six, seven, so a great vast difference in our sizes. And all of you in between, God loves you too, okay? And so... But she knew how much I loved her and how I spoke the truth in love. And then she invited me to be a part of her congregation and has done so several times. Murray Ezring is the rabbi at Temple Israel, the other large temple here in Charlotte. Murray and I met one another, and I did the same thing with him. I told him how much I loved him and his people. He then starts bringing over his youth, his teenagers, to meet with me on a regular basis. And so in one... Occasion, one raised his hand and said, do you believe that we are doomed to eternal hell without a relationship with Jesus? And I said to him, I've got to be faithful to my understanding of my biblical faith tradition. And it says that only by grace are we saved. And it's not by the works of the Torah or the law. It's only by grace. And if I'm faithful to that, I've got to say yes. I said, but you need to know. 
that if I was living in Nazi Germany right now, and, and you, the Jews, were being persecuted, I would die for you. I would not let anyone persecute you if I could prevent it. And you know what happened? They got tears in their eyes because they knew the grace of Jesus was being extended to them as I spoke the truth as I understand it in love. Three weeks ago, Murray Ezring has a huge gathering of his temple to speak about the uniqueness of evangelicalism and the biblical conviction from a Christian worldview. He asked me to come speak to them. So I had the privilege of sharing the gospel with his congregation as well. Why? Because I've tried to the best of my ability to walk that that delicate, difficult balance between grace and truth. So, So try it. Because if you love somebody, most often you'll earn the right to be heard. And remember, as you speak your truth, you're in sales, God's in management. Right? You're in sales, God's in management. It's not your job to convince anybody. It's the Holy Spirit's job. But it is your job to speak the truth in love. One more example. There's probably no thornier, difficult issue for Christians in our culture, in a post-truth culture, to face than biblical human sexuality. Especially in the area of gay and lesbianism and transgenderism. And if I'm asked a question more than any other question, it's that one. How do I, as a person who follows Jesus and believes in his word, interrelate with those who are gay, homosexual, lesbian, and transgendered? And the answer is the same. You walk that delicate balance between grace and truth. I was invited, I guess, because of my years of service to this community representing the Christian biblical community to speak to the HB2 group of people on the stage of the forum downtown, you know, live on Facebook, all that stuff. And I was supposed to represent, again, our view as Christians. Two people down from me is a transgendered male. And so I'm asked right up front, what do you think of him? (laughs) Thank you very much. So I turned to him after he'd shared a story of being bullied and beaten up because of his transgenderism. And I said to him, you need to know that I love you as a person created in the image of God. For you have been created in his image. But you need to know too that if I had been there when those people had beaten you up, I would have beaten them up in the name of Jesus. You just need to know that. I would have interceded on your behalf because you're a child of God in a certain way. But then I said to him, which is the argument of the gay, lesbian, and transgender community, God made me this way. And I looked at him and I said, but I don't believe God made you that way. The Bible teaches that we're created in the image of God. And I think it's because of some conflagration of different issues, environment, genetics, relational, family systems. There are a lot of things that go into this very complex issue. I don't believe God made you that way, but I also believe that the power of the gospel can set you free. I believe that with all my heart because the Bible says that, and I've experienced it in my own life. Folks, for those of you who have hurtful 
habits, hang-ups, problems in life, I guarantee you, your hurts, hang-ups, and bad habits are rooted in some lie that you bought. Every one of your pains is somehow related to some kind of lie that you bought. I'm borrowing physical difficulties and those kind of things, but the, the, the kind of hang-ups and hurts and habits that we have that are so painful have a lie. And what's interesting is in John the 8th chapter, Jesus is confronting the Jews about their father being the father of lies. And he says to them, and we'll get to it in John 8, John 8, 32, and the truth will set you, what? Set you free. If I didn't believe the power of the gospel could come and set the captives free, I'm not going to do what I'm doing each week in in and week out. I believe it can with all my heart. I've seen it happen in so many different people's lives and I think in many of your lives as well. My eye doctor um, took me aside one day in in the appointment and said, David, I've listened to you preach many times, and she said, you know, this issue of gay, lesbian, transgenderism is so problematic in our culture. I just want you to know my son's a homosexual. And I said, well, will you let me know what that makes you feel like? To try and enter into her hurt, and she said, well, she said, you just need to know he'll always be my son. And I love him. And I said this, well, do you think it's natural she bowed her head and said, no. She said, I want grandchildren. I don't think it's natural. But then she looked me in the eye and said, but David, he's my son. And I love him. Dear friends, that should be our attitude. I love you. You're created in the image of God, but it's a marred image. All of us have marred images. Those of you caught in the quagmires of pornographic difficulties, that's a marred image of God. Those of you who are caught in alcohol addictions or drug problems, that's the marred image of God. And again, if you're going to talk to somebody like that and say, here is, I love you, but here's what I think is truth. You just need to know that if you point a finger, you have four pointing back at you. And before you get too seriously condemning of another person, make sure you're dealing with your own stuff. Because all of us have broken images. And she taught me a powerful lesson of the power of love, but also she's spoken to her son. I don't believe God made you this way. I think that's the way you handle the difficulty. You love people. You speak the truth in love. And you believe you're in sales, God's in management. And you deal with your own brokenness as well. Some people say that truth and grace is a paradox. You know what a paradox is? It's two doctors. I'm terrible. Okay, just a little little levity to break the difficulty of the mood. No. (laughs) Marilyn would say right now, you are one sick dude, boy. Anyway, grace and truth is not a paradox. It's a paradigm. It's a paradigm for how to live. And, and, and it's how to live this, this crazy balance that Jesus has called us to live. And it's a hard walk across that, that wire. But it's the one Jesus has called us to walk. One final thought. I don't know how much longer God's going to have me doing this gig. I've been here a long time. I hope it's for another 10 years or so. I hope so, but I don't know. Only God knows. But here's the truth. The guy who walked across that high wire between the Twin Towers, in the interview thereafter, he was arrested by the police, by the way. <laughs> And 
They asked him, what's the most difficult part of the high wire act? And he said, the last three feet. Because after you've done it, you get a little cocky, and the last three feet are the hardest. Hold me accountable. Make sure I finish well. Make sure I finish the last three feet of hopefully, prayerfully walking grace and truth in your midst. To God be the glory. Amen. Would you please stand? Thank you for that. You know, any applause I receive, I give to God for any gift I have or thoughts I have are from him. And if I've misstated anything, please know my purpose is not to offend. It's to try to speak the truth in love. So, Would you state with me the Apostles' Creed? Uh, you've all been given a card. I challenge you to memorize it during these four months. Uh, get your children to memorize it. It's a, the earliest creedal statement of the church. Let's read it together, and I'll stop you one time to give you one insight that many of you asked me about. You ready? If you are a follower of Jesus, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Stop. The most often asked question that you'll email me this next week is, what does that mean? He descended into hell. Well, I'm so glad you asked. For the early church fathers thought it important to look in the line of how this comes to us, that Jesus suffered, was crucified, dead, and buried. And then the next step, he descended to hell, which is where all of us go without a relationship with him. Remember, Christ came in human flesh to identify with our human condition. And he took on all the sins of the world upon himself on the cross. And then he went to the gates of hell, where anyone is headed without him. But, but the next line is so important to believe. After he went to the gates of hell, the father in his victory raised him from the dead. Raised him from the dead. And that's why the next line is, on the third day he rose again from the dead. That he died, crucified, dead, buried, went to the gates of hell, but was raised again from the dead. Praise God for that one real quickly and we'll continue. That's the heart of the Christian faith. Then he ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Quick means living. One day, the lamb who's filled with grace will come back as the lion filled with truth, and he will judge everybody, the living and the dead. And then I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Word Catholics is an adjective, which means worldwide. When Marilyn and I were in Egypt this past week, we worshiped with Egyptian believers. I didn't tell y'all, did I? Oh, you only, oh I'm sorry. Good grief. I got in at 3.30 on the morning. Okay, I'm sorry. The Christmas Eve offering was a little over $700,000. $700,000. I'm so sorry I forgot I'm tired. Anyway, um, and that's going to be used to plant a church in New Cairo, Egypt, the most important city in that part of the world. Would you give God praise for that again? So we we were over there meeting with those dear saints, and, and we can say, I believe in the holy worldwide Catholic church. Let's keep going. The communion, the forgiveness, the resurrection, and life. Woo, isn't that the best gift possible, life everlasting? Thank you. 
So, so memorize it. it. It succinctly states what we believe, and the martyrs throughout the history of the church knew the Apostles' Creed and would recite it in prison as they were being persecuted. 